If you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Matthew, to the Gospel of Matthew. And I'll be making reference several times in the sermon to a section of a document called the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563. The section I'll refer to is on page 215 of the Thin Forms and Prayers book. It's also in the hymnal. So if you'd like to see that with your own eyes, of course, you can turn there as well. But Matthew chapter 1 will provide our main reading. Now this evening, Lord willing, we begin a series on 2 Samuel, and this morning we also begin a new series, and this series will go off and on for what I expect to be at least a year. So we'll be on for several weeks or months, and then we'll take breaks, so Lord willing, it will not just plow directly through what we're doing, but what we are doing is returning to a custom which maybe you have not experienced, maybe you came here within the past year, but this is an old custom among us, and that is that one of the two services, ordinarily, we work through the doctrines of the Bible as they are summarized and outlined in our various confessional forms. Now, I want to be very clear that as we do this, as we work through the doctrines summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, the point is not for you to become more familiar with the Catechism than with the Bible. The point is that the Catechism drives us into the Bible. Think about it this way. On the one hand, you can have a pastor or a single consistory determine what they believe are the most essential doctrines and passages of the Bible. Or, in our case, we work through this document that has been used. It's the most widely adopted of all of the Protestant confessions of the Reformation era. We use this to lay before you what the churches have agreed. This is where the core, the heart of our faith lies, these things in the Bible. And so the goal will be to look at the Bible and see all of these things that matter so much for us. We'll be doing that over a period of time. Now, this morning, we're picking up where I left off previously, and that's at Lord's Day 14. So we're not going to start right back at the beginning. Whenever we take breaks, we'll just pick up and keep moving forward. And what that concerns is the conception of Christ, his conception and his virgin birth. And that's why... As I mentioned, somebody said, you know, Merry Christmas, because we're at a passage we associate typically with December in our tradition. But really, it's a truth for all time to consider what does it mean that God comes among us. And our text is Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Let's give attention to the word. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, even as Elder Moss prayed, we ask you together again, please work by your Holy Spirit to apply these truths to us. Open our hearts, our understanding. Guard us from error in everything. Be glorified in order that we might become more and more your willing servants. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen. I'm sure you're aware that there are some parts of the Bible, some teachings that most unbelievers would readily affirm. Things like the fact that the Bible says you should not oppress the weak. Most people, Christian or not, are going to affirm that. But being a genuine Christian involves affirming, embracing, believing some things that the world simply is not going to believe. For instance, there are many professing Christians who struggle with the idea of Jesus' miracles, that he multiplied bread and fish, that he really did walk on water. This is not a myth. It's not a fable. And many who profess the name of Christ will struggle with that, and maybe at times you struggle with that. Now, where does that come from? It comes in part that for centuries now, we have been living in a society that increasingly has become secularized, has become more naturalistic, more skeptical. That is, living as though God does not interact with the world, whether or not there is a God. But if you live as though God is not in the world, then you start to feel and believe that God is not at work in the world. And the logic basically goes... I haven't seen any miracles, so why should I be obligated to believe in miracles? If I haven't seen it, I shouldn't have to believe it. This became a major controversy in the American churches in the early, early 20th century, a controversy between the so-called theological fundamentalists who affirm miracles and the theological liberals. They called themselves liberals because they felt that it was more generous they were making room for people who did not, could not affirm these miracles. And it especially centered on the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. It is still the case today. There are many people who profess the name of Christ who say this, is not, this shouldn't be one of the essential things. As long as you affirm the morals of Jesus... As long as you affirm the way he said to live and you affirm the sense of absolute dependence upon the father that he had, then that should be enough to be a Christian. But with the church throughout the ages, and more importantly, with the Holy Spirit who bears witness in the word, we confess and believe that this is one of those essential doctrines of the faith. It's not like an appendix or some other part of the body that if you remove it, you can go on living. This is at the heart of the faith because without it, you do not get the blood of Christ to cover you in a sufficient way. In the conception of Christ by the Holy Spirit, God conceived a most ingenious covering for our condition. 
And that's what we're going to consider this morning. We're going to do so, I hope, in a fairly straightforward way, under three main headings. First, we're going to look at what it is that we confess as a Christian church. What do we confess about this? And then second, why do we confess this? What is our reason for believing in the miraculous conception of Christ? And then third, what comfort or what benefit does this bring you, not just at some point in your life, but on a regular basis, to believe that Christ really, truly was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary? We're going to see it does matter. It has practical implications and indeed implications for your very salvation, your very eternal life being tied to this. So this is what we consider this morning. We're going to dive right into the first of these three headings. What do we confess as a Christian church? And I add that, not simply a Reformed church. This is one of those doctrines which is held by all true churches. What is it that we believe about the conception of Christ? The very first thing is very, very simple. We believe it is a historical event. We believe that Jesus really was conceived. He was a real human being. The Gospels are presented in the genre of history. They have all the tells of historical documents. And Jesus is borne witness to not only in the Bible, but also extra-biblically. I don't lay all of that before you at this time, but you should understand we treat Jesus as historical, not simply a great idea. But then we have to go further. As a church, we confess that the person whom we call Jesus, the person in our passage who was given that name, did not begin to exist at his conception. And that makes him different than all of us. We became people at the time of our conception. But the person described here is different. Look with me at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's referring here to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Jesus was never given the title Emmanuel as a proper name. Nobody was calling him that in his life. But here it's referring to how they would identify him. His name is the summary of who he is. And he is God with us. Very God of very God, begotten not made, as the Athanasian Creed would put it. And so the second person of the Trinity exists as agelessly as the Father and the Holy Spirit. And yet we believe that at a real point in history, approximately 2,000 years ago, God the Holy Spirit worked a miracle. Within the womb of a young woman, he took from her natural human flesh and he formed a child. And with that formation, that miracle, he united the human nature to the one person of the Son forever. And so he's truly God and truly man. Consider what it says in verse 18. Before they, that is Mary and Joseph, came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The text here and elsewhere tries to make abundantly clear to you, Joseph had nothing to do with this. This is not like other prophets of the Bible, some natural-born person whom God simply empowered. The Bible doesn't teach that about Jesus. The world wants to say that. He was just some great teacher. Empowered, maybe. But no, he's not. In fact, 
John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. How close is this union of the divine nature and the human nature? How closely identified, united are they to the one person of the Son? With the churches throughout the ages, we believe this union is so close, so perfect, so indivisible, that we can say this. It would not be improper to say that Mary is the mother of God. And I can tell on some faces that we may feel a little uncomfortable with that language. She is not the mother of his divine being. That is eternal. She's the mother according to his human nature. But the person of the Son is so identified, united with that human nature that it is not improper. The churches have always affirmed it's not improper to affirm that she is the Theotokos, the mother of God. Nor would it be improper to say that as she and Joseph held that infant child, heard him cry, watched him eat, sat and stared at him as he slept, that they are beholding very God of very God, crying, eating, sleeping. This is a miracle beyond comprehension, but it is what we affirm to be true. As it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, 1 John 5, 20, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. And it's nowhere better summarized than in our catechism. I mentioned on page 215 that we confess together what it says in question and answer 35. Hear what it says. What does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? And I don't think it could be any more clear than what our catechism says. That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant like his brothers in all things except for sin. Because sin is not of the essence originally of human nature. But bear in mind what we do not believe. We don't believe that God simply provided for himself a kind of physical shell and dwelled inside of that. To say that he had a true human nature means he has a true human will, he has a true mind, true emotions. Truly God, truly man. There's no such thing as 99% human. That's not a human. If it's 99%, that's why our confessions use the language of truly. Again, and I want to be clear, whether you are young and hearing this for the first time, whether you are newer to the faith, or whether you are older and you have tried to pick this bone and you still don't get it, we do not confess full comprehension of the miracle. That's not what we confess. We confess that we believe these things, but not that we fully comprehend it. There are many things that we believe in that we don't fully comprehend or that we cannot prove by empirical science. I can't prove that I'm not just in a vat, you know, having these thoughts and imagining I'm here right now. The Lord has set the world up in a certain way that we have reason to believe. And he works by his spirit in such a way to bring things home. But that's not the same as full comprehension. In fact, I don't ask that you turn there, but listen to these words. 
None less than the Apostle Paul says, 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness that he was manifested in the flesh. Great indeed is the mystery. Well, if it's so mysterious how the virgin conception took place, why then do we require it as part of the core, the essence of genuine Christian profession? If it's so mysterious, why do we require this? And that brings us into our second main heading, why we confess the miraculous conception of Christ. We've seen basically what it means. He's truly God, truly man, begotten, not made, within the womb. Why do we believe this? And I want to lay before you three reasons. Three reasons. Certainly more could be added. But these should be the starting point for our thought about this. The first sounds like, here's a new word perhaps, a tautology. A kind of circular reasoning. It doesn't seem to prove anything at first when you hear it, depending where you are coming from. I assure you it is not. The first reason why we affirm the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ is because the Holy Spirit bears witness in and with the word to his elect people that it is true. Now, a person who is not a believer hears that and says, well, that doesn't prove anything to me because I have not experienced the Holy Spirit bearing witness in and through the word about these things. That doesn't mean it's not true or that it's not the experience of God's people. You might have a phone that does not receive 5G. It doesn't have the hardware or the software. That doesn't mean I'm not receiving it or that all of his people throughout the world are not receiving it. Part of Christian theology is that when God takes a person to himself by the Holy Spirit, he grants a renewed nature. He does a work that we call the new birth. He imparts a new nature from the Father, begun in this life, growing up to the next stage. And with that, the Holy Spirit bears witness to things. For instance, it says he bears bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We don't know that we're children of God simply because we rationalized it. The Holy Spirit, who is personal, bears witness in his people. Our Belgic Confession, another one of our confessional documents, says this much in Article 5. Hear what it says. We believe without a doubt all things contained in the scriptures, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, But above all, because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God. That can sound bracing to people who want to be rationalistic. But notice what immediately follows that, because then it relates to the second reason we affirm the virgin conception of Christ. Right after saying that, the Belgian Confession says that we first of all believe because the Holy Spirit bears witness, but then it adds these words. And also because the scriptures prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. In other words, it's drawing attention here to secondary proofs of the authority and inspiration of the Bible. The Holy Spirit, when he works upon us, works in and with those secondary proofs. Things like the fact that the Bible is an organic unity. What do I mean by that? We're not going to go into all of that right now. 
That's a whole doctrine of scripture sermon we'll get to someday or for you to study. But the more you study the Bible, the more you discover it is a unified whole. More than 40 authors writing some 66 books over centuries and centuries from every sphere and strata of society. And yet there is unity of doctrine, of purpose, the purity of the morality that it calls us to, that it says things about human beings that no human wants to have said about them. It doesn't pull punches for laying before us a realistic picture of the world. Then you have prophetic fulfillment. The world can walk by that and say, I'm not even going to look into it. And yet if they did, they would discover that this is beyond all explanation. The many prophecies, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, and there are extant copies, existing copies of the scrolls of Isaiah that predate the birth of Christ by centuries. And yet their specificity bears witness to the truth of who he is. So that's a second reason. The Holy Spirit bears witness in and through the scriptures as they are reasonable. And then there's a third reason. This one's a little bit different. We affirm the miraculous conception of Jesus because of the resurrection of Jesus. I want you to think about that. Do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? And think of all the reasons for that. The bodily resurrection of Christ. Christians understand it to be a historical event as well attested or better than virtually any other event from ancient history. If you want to say, well, there's no historical basis for believing that, you'll have to get rid of things like our belief that Julius Caesar entered Gaul. Because there's more attestation, more reason to believe. That was the argument that Paul was making in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if you doubt this, go and speak to the people. Hundreds be held. Christianity emerges from its first centuries, not as driven by one cult leader somewhere, but making audacious historical claims that anyone could verify. Now, how does that relate to this? Think about it this way. Everyone else who dies stays dead. Everyone else who dies stayed dead. Even the people who are raised by Jesus, they die again and they stay dead. They await the final resurrection. And that bears witness. Christians recognize, we affirm what the Bible says, that bears witness to something about the condition in which you and I were conceived. The wages of sin is death. All human beings, by nature, share in that guilt and corruption from the time of Adam. One accepted. Christ is accepted from this because he has, at his conception, his proper father being the heavenly father. Even as it says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen, the head of Christ is God, not Adam. The world will struggle with all of these reasons, and I'm not trying to persuade the world on the basis of worldliness. But God's people do recognize, and the more you understand the system of belief laid out in the Bible, you go, this clicks. And if I believe the scriptures on other things, I should affirm this as well. More reasons could be added. And there is a fourth, but I wish to treat of it entirely separately as our third and our final heading. Our third and our final heading. It's one thing to understand the doctrine. It's another thing to understand why we believe it. It's another thing to understand how it actually benefits us. How the miraculous conception of Christ actually comforts God's people. And it's this that I want to draw your attention to. And in fact, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. To Psalm 51. 
What I want you to see here in Psalm 51 and then 58 is what it says about our natural condition. Again, I have said that the Bible teaches that we are all conceived in a state of sinfulness. We are never existing in a moment where we did not have the corruption and the guilt of Adam before us. Psalm 51 verse 5 attests, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's as the NIV reads. The ESV is similar. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Then look at Psalm 58 verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. That is, estranged from the holiness of God. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. No one has to teach anyone to rebel against their conscience, which God has given to us to attest to his own righteousness. Even the most moral person, nevertheless, rebels at times against what they know is right. If you compare yourself to other people, maybe you feel pretty good about yourself. But we compare ourselves to God and the standard that he gave over humanity. The book of James says that if you know the good and you do not do that, then you sin. And the word that he uses is actually superlative. So if you know the the best thing, if you know what you ought to do, and you choose the lesser path, there is sin in that. Who of us could possibly stand against that and say, I am pure, I was conceived differently. The Bible describes a condition of humanity that the world does not rejoice to hear. And it is bleak. But if you don't understand the disease, you cannot receive the cure. Go ahead, put it to the test, though. I challenge you. And I did this as well. I remember somebody saying, just try to go a week without violating your conscience even once. Try to go a week and perfectly obey God's commands. If you're actually trying to do it about 20 minutes later, you're like, whoa, this is not going well. You can either own that and then say, how do we deal with this? Or you can suppress that truth. In this way, we come back to the value of Jesus' conception. The miracle of his conception is that in it, God conceived a most ingenious, a generous way of addressing our falling condition. He did not ask you to hear some message and live a better life and maybe earn his favor. But God came down. He took to himself our true human nature, body and spirit. And in that way, he was enabled to fulfill all the righteous requirements of God. To live a perfectly loving human life, loving God and loving his neighbor as he ought. And all that obedience is credited graciously to the one who through faith is united with Christ. God has chosen to receive through faith the counting of all of Christ's righteousness. Not identical, but not dissimilar to the way that perhaps two people get married and there is an exchange of debt and of wealth. The wealth of Christ's merit became ours through faith. But it's a human merit. He lived a human life in fulfillment of the covenant. And even so, he suffered in body and soul the judgment deserved for your sins. 
That is of such tremendous comfort to the person who is so inclined to think first and perhaps only of God as this unspeakable, unapproachable, holy fire, which is what he is outside of the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. If you try to leave this life and go into the presence of God not covered in Christ, you are walking into a furnace Because there is genuine holiness in God. It's not because he's a a bad and a strict God. It is only our own sin that blinds us to think that it's not such a big deal. And it's his own goodness that restrains that tendency in us, which, if uncontrolled, would burst out to burn the whole thing down. But God does not want his people who approach him in faith to think of him first and only as this unapproachable fire, but as the most approachable of all human persons who has ever been. God of God is also very man of very man. And you look in the Gospels and you observe how he is. And you take that to yourself when you are weeping, saying, how am I going to grow? And you see, Jesus reaches his hand out to the untouchable. He pardons the unpardonable. He reclines with those that you would expect him to want far from him. He has not changed. The person of the Son is eternal. He cannot change. And so whatever we see of him towards them in the Gospels, we by faith receive for ourselves, I have one who wears my flesh who has lived for me, who has died for me, and who loves me. This is what we confess in the Heidelberg in question and answer 36. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? The answer is he is our mediator, and in God's sight he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Even so, the scripture says that while we were yet sinners, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, for us. So what do we do with this? I want simply, as we conclude, to give you kind of two charges. The first charge is very simple. Brother, sister in the Lord, I charge you, do not budge from this doctrine an inch. Hold fast to it. The world that we live in increasingly wants to say, if you haven't seen a miracle, you should not believe. You should not feel obligated to believe a miracle. And the only way they can say that is by suppressing other information. They say, well, I haven't ever seen that, so I shouldn't have to believe in that. Is there anything else that no one has ever observed and yet multitudes believe in? Even presently, You have multitudes of secular people who believe that by some process never observed or repeated, suddenly there was tremendously complex information. And I'm talking about the most basic of life. I'm not even talking about the belief that that life then evolved. But to have life itself as a certain minimum information, and when I say minimum, I'm being generous. The information was there. They believe this because they don't have an alternative. If you don't have a God, then you have to believe on faith. Well, we just haven't found the way. And they'll say, well, this is a God of the gaps argument. Letting God fill in for what science has not yet proven. It goes both ways. This is a a, a naturalism of the gaps argument as well. 
because we would not affirm the most obvious things about God and about ourselves. I believe that the Christian stands, in this case, on the highest ground, both intellectually and morally, to affirm the truth about ourselves and about what is basic to this world. Do not budge where God has spoken. I exhort you also, draw nourishment from this doctrine. This is one of those most basic doctrines that we come back to again and again. If you have not received it, now is the time to. It doesn't require, in a sense, that anyone would come forward. It requires that you believe wherever you sit. And then the promise is that you have one who reigns for you. You have an intercessor. You have a friend who wears your flesh, your spirit. Let's ask him to apply that even now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for having revealed to us yourself in your Son. We ask that you would strengthen us, Lord, not because the truth is not apparent, for indeed it seems most simple to think that you who are the author of all life should find it effortless to take from the flesh of a woman and create new life. This is nothing hard for you. Indeed, the real challenge is to comprehend what it means that God spoke and lived and according to his human nature died for us. We ask, Lord, that you would apply these things by your Holy Spirit. Give us great joy and comfort in that we have a mediator. We ask that you would bring these things to us and help us to communicate them to others, to pass on this tradition of faith to those after us. For we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.